you have your Bibles with you, open up to the, to the uh, book of John, the Gospel of John. That's where we've been. We'll just kind of pick up where we left off. Last time I was with you, and uh, I think it was uh, even before Father's Day that we were in John chapter 9, and we hope to finish up this very uh, well-known chapter today, John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. We've been looking at the story of the man born blind and how he came to see, and today we'll see the wonder of salvation. That's the title of today's sermon, The Wonder of of salvation, the very end, again, of John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at a familiar chapter, John chapter 9. And as we wrap up what happens here at the very end of the chapter, I pray that we might all see the beauty of not only seeing physically, but seeing spiritually the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And I pray that as we end this morning with this chapter, that the truths that we've studied and that we'll review and learn again today would forever be uh, in our hearts and in our minds as we too want to see the risen Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, on the plane and while we were in Singapore, I read, I read a book called uh, Loving Jesus More by Phil Riken, phenomenal book. And in there, he tells a story of how William Monteague Dyke, uh, a story about his life which he said seemed too good to be true. Here's how the story goes. William was blinded at an accident at the age of 10. And despite his disability, he went on to graduate from the university with high honors. During his student days, he fell in love with the daughter of a high-ranking British naval officer, and they were engaged to be married. Shortly before the wedding, William had the opportunity to have an experimental eye surgery performed in the hope that his sight might be restored. If the surgery failed, he would remain blind for the rest of his life. But there was a possibility that it would succeed, in which case William, a true romantic, wanted the face of his beautiful bride to be the first sight that he would see. William believed that he had nothing to lose, and so he had the surgery done. But he insisted on keeping the bandages over his eyes until his wedding day. When the happy day arrived, many guests assembled to witness the exchange of wedding vows. There were cabinet members, military officers, and even royalty in attendance. The groom stood at the front of the church with his father and the doctor who had performed the surgery. The triumphant strains of the organ began to play, and it filled the sanctuary as the bride walked majestically down the center aisle. And when she arrived, at the altar, the surgeon took a pair of scissors and carefully cut the bandages from William's eyes. The tension in the room was almost unbearable. Witnesses held their breath as they waited to learn. If anything, the groom, if, if the groom was able to see. As he stood face to face with his bride, William Monteague Dyke gasped, you're even more beautiful than I ever imagined. Well, what a beautiful story, isn't it? I told you it was a story that was almost too good to be true because it's not true. <laughs> this story has circulated in various ways as an illustration, but after a little research that Phil Riken did, just to kind of dig into the, some of those illustrations that pastors use, he found out that it never happened. Apparently, there was a real man named William Monteague Dyke who was an actual descendant of Charlemagne the Great, but unfortunately he died in infancy, which means that William never reached his 10th birthday, let alone went to the university or married the daughter of a naval officer. 
sorry to be a bummer to you this morning. I was reading this in the book, and I was like, this is the perfect illustration for my sermon. And I'm like, what? Nonetheless, this apocryphal story points to a gospel truth. One day, we will see Jesus face to face. And at present, as lovers of the unseen Christ, we worship an invisible Savior. But a day is coming when our faith will become sight. And when our wedding day finally arrives, the bandages will come off and we will see Jesus face to face. And we will truly say what William Monteague Dyke supposedly said to his beloved, you are more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. Well, that day came to the blind man of John chapter 9 long before it will come to us. And so let me briefly review what we've learned already from this man who was born blind. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus approached a man who had been blind from birth. And after spitting on the ground and making mud with his saliva, he anointed the man's eyes with mud and, and told him to go wash off in the pool that was called Siloam. The man came back seeing. The neighbors were amazed. But the Pharisees were skeptical. The Pharisees didn't believe this man's story, and so they interrogated his parents. His parents responded in verse 20, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And so the Pharisees sent for the blind man again and tried to get him to give glory to God instead of giving it to Jesus Christ who had restored his sight. At this point, we see that the blind man was more theologically astute than even the Pharisees. Verse 30 says, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That starts to tell us that this blind man who was uneducated had a little better theological assessment of the situation than the Pharisees themselves. For it is true that there was a messianic prophecy given in the book of Isaiah that Jesus would come and open the eyes of a blind man. And it was inferred that it would be blind from birth. And so at this point, we ended our last session together in this chapter, at this point where the Pharisees, verse 34, they kicked him out, right? They kick him out of the synagogue. And this is where we'll pick up our story to see the conclusion this morning. This morning, I want to give you three headings that will help us look at and better understand the wonder of salvation. And just like we stand amazed at the miracle of the blind man seeing again, may we even be more impressed and overwhelmed with the wonder of salvation. Our first major heading this morning is the blessing of being cast out. Verse 35, the blessing of being cast out. Your first sub-point there, if you are taking notes and want to fill in that blank, is, it just says this, better to be cast out than stuck in a false religion. It's better to be cast out than stuck in a false religion. Again, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Our sympathy goes out a little bit to this blind man. I mean, he's had a lot of hard things in his life, being blind and probably not having a good income, probably being a social outcast. He finally comes to be able to see, and you would think all would be rejoicing with him, and yet the Jews, because he said that it was Jesus who healed him instead of just God the Father who healed him, they kicked him out. He was no longer welcome in the Jewish synagogue. Now, you've got to realize that it was right to be a Jew for 2,000 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, being a Jew was where it was at. They, after all, were the chosen people of God. They were the ones who came into the promised land. They were the ones who received the covenants of promise and could boast of the coming Messiah whose kingdom would have no end. However, somewhere along the way, being a Jew lost its luster. They had added extra laws to what God's word said. They were being led by hypocritical leaders, and they had a preeminent focus on their own accomplishments. They had become proud and self-consumed and narcissistic. They could do no wrong in their own eyes. 
They were so full of themselves that they had no capacity to recognize the Savior who stood right in front of them. And so even when Jesus performed a clear messianic miracle by giving sight to the man born blind, they denied it completely. And they attributed this sign, uh, this sign to God the Father and not to God the Son. In doing this, they tried to humiliate the man and his family. They would not acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, and they attempted to, to pull apart the Trinity. They didn't see any place of Jesus being in the Godhead. And so with this in mind, maybe it wasn't such a bad thing that they cast out the blind man. They excommunicated him. They jeopardized this man's ability to have any social, economic, or cultural privileges. But at least this gave the blind man a clear path to Jesus. As long as you are stuck in a false religion, it's hard to see the Savior. Listen to the thoughts of John Calvin on this text. Quote, if the man had been allowed to remain in the synagogue, he would in the course of time have become estranged from Christ. The very fact that he was cast out made him more receptive to the grace of God. Similarly, when the Pope expelled Luther and others from the Roman synagogue and thundered his anathemas upon them, Christ reached out his hand and revealed himself in full to them. Hence, the best thing for us is to be as far as possible removed from the enemies of the gospel in order that Christ may draw so much closer to us, close quote. I appreciate that perspective, right? It's better to be cast out of a false religion than to be stuck in it. I, I tell people all the time that it may be possible to have been brought up in a Roman Catholic background and be a Christian as long as you believe in salvation by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone, which the Roman Catholic Church does not teach. Therefore, I don't know how any true Christian could remain for long in a false religion without coming out, hopefully sooner than later. And so while it may have been painful in some regards to be kicked out of the Jewish synagogue, the joy and the comfort of coming to see and know Christ far outweigh hanging on to a dead religion that has no life and where rigor mortis has set in. It was time to let go of the dead corpse of Judaism and to hold on to Jesus Christ who alone could save this man's soul from hell. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? A lot of times we apply that passage to worldliness, but we should also apply it to the strong ties that you may have to your biological family. If they're stooped and stuck in a false religion of any kind, you must make the choice at some point in your life, am I gonna remain stuck in a dead religion or am I gonna forsake all and be willing to abandon all so that I might see Christ? And so having that perspective reminds us that it's not such a bad thing to be excommunicated if you're being excommunicated from a false religion. And so let me ask you this morning, are you stuck in a false religion? Are you stuck in any false belief? Are you stuck in your sin? Come to Jesus this morning and have your life change forever. The world doesn't like you, your works can't redeem you, and the false religion cannot save you. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, not only are we seeing that it's better to be cast out than stuck in a false religion, but we could also say here, your second sub-point, it's better to be cast out so that you can be found. It's better to be cast out so that you can be found. There in the middle of verse 35, they cast him out, and having found him, he said... We'll just look at that one little part of the middle. Having found him, he said, notice how verse 35 says that it is Jesus who found him, right? It's, it's Jesus who found the man. 
This word found means to come upon something after a purposeful search. Undoubtedly, Jesus had heard about how the man was kicked out of the synagogue and he made a search for the man whom he had healed. And Jesus came looking for him. And let me tell you something, whatever Jesus searches for, he finds. And when you came to the cross, it was not because you went out looking for God, but rather that he came looking for you. The initiative is always his. He first loved you. He is the true and wonderful seeker. John Chrysostom, early church father, said it beautifully, quote, the Jews cast him out of the temple and the Lord of the temple found him, close quote. Jesus heard about the mistreatment of this man by the religious leaders, and so he seeks him out and tracks him down. And the Pharisees shut him out, but Jesus sought him out. The Pharisees reject him, but Jesus receives him. The Pharisees disown the man, but Jesus transforms the man. Did you know that you must be lost before you can be found? My pastor used to tell me all the time, and we would go out and do door-to-door evangelism, he'd say, Adam, my main objective today is to help people see that they're lost. Because if we can't get them to the point where they see that they're lost and they're dead and their transgressions and sins, then we'll never help them see that they need to be found. Before you can help somebody be found, they must realize they're lost. And we must see that this world really has nothing for us. We must see that the riches of the world and all the relationships of the world and all the religions of the world can't save you. That as long as you're stuck in that, you're lost. But by the grace of God, our sovereign Lord Jesus comes to seek and to save the lost. That's the good news, right? Jesus came to do just that. He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. He came for those who were not pent up in their religion, but by those who've been kicked out. Jesus came not for the rich, but for the poor in spirit. Jesus came for lost sheep. Listen to how Ezekiel 34:11 says it. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I... I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. A little bit later, Ezekiel 34, 16, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Just a reminder that God's always been a shepherd. He's always seeking out the lost. In Luke 15, 4 and 5, Jesus says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. My friends, I hope that you're reminded this morning that that one sheep that was lost was you. That one sheep that was lost was me. That one sheep that was lost is the one that Jesus came looking for, and he brought us in. It's Matthew 15, 24, when Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Uh, I was not sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, insinuating that that, uh, he's going there first, but there's also the expansion of the gospel ministry outside of the sheep of Israel into any sheep who's gone astray, each of us to our own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so let me ask you this morning again, are you lost or have you been found? A.W. Pink says, quote, no sooner had the Sanhedrin excommunicated the beggar than the Savior sought him out. How true it is that those who honor God are honored by him. Faithfully had this man walked according to the measure of light. Now more is given to him. Great is the compassion of Christ. He knew full well the weight of the trial which had fallen upon this newly born soul. And he proved himself a very present help in trouble. You're in trouble this morning? You may be if you've been cast out from the world, if you've been abandoned by your unbelieving friends, if you've been abandoned by your unbelieving family, if you've been excommunicated from some false religion, there has been deep pain and heartache that you may have experienced, but be encouraged this morning that the Lord seeks you out, that if you're lost, you can be found, 
It's better to be cast out than stuck in a false religion. It's better to be cast out so that you can be found. Thirdly, it's better to be cast out so that you can believe in the Son of Man. Notice how he wraps up verse 35 here, and he, after finding this man, he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? When Jesus finds the man, he puts before him and asks the question of the ages. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Like the question that Jesus put before the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He is asking the man, do you believe that God will send a Savior, and when he comes, will you put your faith and trust in him? This is divine initiative. Jesus does say in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus loved you first, but you must respond. Notice Jesus here says, do you believe? He doesn't ask about his parents' faith. He doesn't ask what the Jews are believing that day. He asked this man at this moment in time, do you believe in the Son of Man? There is a divine drawing taking place here. John 6, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this man is being drawn in to see the risen Savior. Notice also that Jesus is using the title, Son of Man. The man born blind needs to believe in Jesus not only as a miracle worker, but as the Messiah. Son of man is a title used 13 times in the Gospel of John. And this is the title that Jesus uses to refer to himself more than any other. Some manuscripts use the phrase son of God. It's not found in the earliest manuscripts as son of man, but those two phrases, son of God, son of man, basically mean the same thing. They're both just titles for Jesus as the Christ. Just listen to how Son of Man and this title has already been used in the Gospel of John. John 1:51. and he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. John 6.27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. John 6.62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? John 8.28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. It's used over and over again in the Gospel of John. Remember, Jesus uses this reference more than any other. Why, we might ask. Well, remember, the original title, Son of Man, is used by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Why don't you turn there with me, if you will. Daniel 7, I just want you to see it real quick in its context. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. This is when the Jews were taken into captivity, into Babylon. And it may have been easy for the Jews at this time of their captivity to struggle with the fulfillment of parts of the Abrahamic covenant where God had promised them land, which they were no longer in, seed, which had not yet come in the person of Christ, and universal blessing, where it maybe not have been clear to them about the redemption of all those who would repent and believe. And it might have been easy for the Jews while they're stuck in exile to think, well, how in the world are all these promises that God has given to us going to become true? The Jews may have struggled with the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which stated that there was a son of David that would sit on the throne forever and ever, and his kingdom would know no end. So if these promises of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant had been given to Israel, and if they're now in exile and there's no king on the throne, then what are they to believe about Yahweh? I mean, the last Davidic king that served in Judah before the exile was Zedekiah, who ruled for 11 years. And his reign saw the second rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, where Jerusalem was captured after a lengthy siege. The temple had been burnt to the ground, and Zedekiah had his eyes gouged out and was taken into exile in Babylon. The holy city of Jerusalem had been reduced to a mere province. Where are the promises of victory? And of the Messiah now, the promise comes through the prophet Daniel. 
chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, what an encouragement. Here they are outside of the promised land, not seeing the seed, not understanding the blessing of redemption, thinking maybe all is lost, and yet Daniel, the prophet, was given a vision by God, the Ancient of Days, where he saw Jesus, the Son of Man, presented before him, and it was the Ancient of Days who was giving to him, the Father giving to the Son, dominion and glory and a kingdom and people and nations and languages. And so when Jesus is using this phrase, son of man, he's simply saying, I'm here. This is what Daniel was talking about. Israel hasn't lost all hope. I am the Messiah. I am here to bring Israel out of a different kind of bondage. They're in exile to their own sin and to their own hypocrisy. And they need a spiritual deliverer. And they need a spiritual king. And his name is Jesus. And he is the son of man. And so by using this title... Jesus is reminding us that he has been sent from the ancient of days, that to him was given all dominion and glory and this kingdom, and that his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. And so when Jesus, back to John 9, is asking this man, who had just been banished from the synagogue, who had just been seemingly cut off from the promises of Israel, who was now on his own. Do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, do you believe in hope? Do you believe in redemption? Do you believe in the concept of a personal Savior who can save you from your sins? And my friends, how we need to be reminded of this same truth on our worst day. When you get let go from your job, and when you flunk the test at school, and when you have a big argument with your spouse, and when your rebellious teenager disobeys you again, and when your money is tight, and when you're in the midst of a car crash, and when you receive devastating news from the doctor, when you're in constant conflict with various loved ones, when you're feeling depressed, when you're struggling with habitual sin, when you're at your worst, do you believe in the Son of Man? In the words of the worship song, what a beautiful name. I love that song. I listen to it on the radio from time to time, just talking about the beauty of Jesus, who is the Son of God and the Son of Man. The song goes like this. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a wonderful name it is. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. Do you believe this morning in the Son of Man? Do you believe in his power? Do you believe in his kingdom? Do you believe in his might? Do you believe that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace? We need to be cast out so that we can be found and see Jesus for who he really is, the Son of Man. Well, now that we've seen the blessing of being cast out, Let's look now at the belief that changes your life. Verse 36, your first blank says, let's look at the definition of belief. The definition of belief there in verse 36, he answered him, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now, remember when Jesus first interacted with the man born blind, he simply anointed his eyes with mud and told him to go wash, and he came back seeing. But as far as we know, the man who can now see, had not yet physically seen Jesus. He, he didn't know what Jesus looked like. He, he may have recognized Jesus' voice. He may have recognized his smell, but it was impossible for this man to identify him with his sight since this is the first time maybe he's seen him since he was healed. And nevertheless, we see that there's a willingness that this man has to believe. He just simply says, where is he? 
that I might believe. There's no opposition here. There's no hard heart here. There's no rebellion here. This was a broken man who was blind who can now see. This man shows utter kindness and calling Jesus, sir. This was a man whose heart who had been softened, who was ready to believe. It's almost as if the man were saying, show me where he is that I might believe. And notice as well that the man who was blind believes that the Son of Man is a reference to a person, not to an idea or a concept or a collective community or a higher power. He says, show me where he is that I might believe in him. No, the Messiah was not just some thought or some superhero in the sense of a mythical figure. Jesus was a Jewish man. And this man who now has his eyes open needs only to look at the Messiah and he is ready to believe in him. This word believe means to trust. It means to have faith in something or in someone. Therefore, to believe in Jesus is more than a a mental acknowledgement. To believe in a biblical sense carries three elements, which James Montgomery Boyce calls knowledge, heart response, and commitment. Spurgeon refers to these same three elements as knowledge, belief, and trust. Lloyd-Jones calls these same three elements of believing as being aware having a mental assent, and a commitment to. And that's what we're saying, is that salvation requires belief in that sense, not just as a passive acknowledgement, but there's this idea of the true knowledge of Christ, a conviction that he is indeed the Son of Man, and then some type of commitment to him. Not that the commitment saves you, but there's an evidence of someone who's willing to put their whole life in the Savior's hands. And so we could say salvation requires belief, But belief in and of itself is a gift of God. The fact that believing is a sovereign gift from God is found in Philippians 119, or excuse me, 129, when it says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In other words, in that verse, it just kind of reemphasizes, it's been granted to you. It's it's, It's a gift. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, the belief in, in Philippians 1.29. It's been granted to you. It's been given to you. It's, it's something that, that God does by his sovereign grace. In fact, the, the root word for believe is the word pistuo. Uh, it's the same uh, root word for the word faith. We talk about faith and belief. Faith is the noun. Believe is the verb. They are both sovereignly granted to you by God. And at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus declared that lost sinners are to repent and believe the gospel. So the word believe is used over and over, as we know, here in the gospel of John. In fact, the word believe is even used twice in the theme verse, which is John 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing may have life in his name. In the prologue of the Gospel of John, we're told, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The most famous verse in the Gospel of John, and yes, in the whole Bible, for that matter, uses the word believe, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says in John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And so we see here this incredible need for us to believe. You believe this morning in the risen Savior? It goes on, the word believe in the book of Acts, the apostles, Peter tells Cornelius and the other Gentiles, Acts 10, 43, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of their sins through his name. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? What do they say? Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Writing to the Romans, Paul explains that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who, what? Believes. Romans 3, 9 and 10, we read it yet again that the idea is that we must believe, right? That the idea here is that for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, but before that, it tells us that you've got to believe, that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. And so from our perspective, believing is something that we do. But from the biblical perspective, we understand that we can't believe if God doesn't awaken us and enable us and empower us to be able to believe. And so now that we've seen the eagerness of this man who was born blind to believe, let's look at verse 37, your next blank. Believing is not necessarily seeing. It's not necessarily seeing. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. So the man's asking, well, where is the Son of Man that I might believe in him? And Jesus is like, well, you've seen him. It's the one talking to you. Jesus answers the man's question. In other words, it's me. It's, I'm the one talking to you. I am the Son of Man. Jesus said a similar thing to the woman at the well of Samaria when she just said, I know the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just as Jesus revealed himself in full to this woman, the woman at Samaria, who was also an outcast in society, Jesus now reveals himself in full to this man who was born blind, who became an outcast from the Jewish nation. And what a blessing, again, it must have been not only for this man to have seen Jesus in the flesh, uh, but for him also to be saved. That we understand that he didn't have to see him in the flesh to be saved. That was an added bonus, because certainly we haven't seen Jesus in the flesh, and we can still be saved, which is why Jesus says to the doubting disciple Thomas, who insisted that he see the risen Savior, put his hand in the scars to believe. Remember what Jesus said to him? He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said this, have you believed? Because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we understand that belief is essential to saving faith. And aren't you thankful? Again, it doesn't have to be physical. There's tons of people who saw Jesus and never believed, who saw all of his miracles and never believed, because this belief that we're talking about is faith. What the Bible says is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You don't have to see Jesus to believe in him. That's partly why I enjoy not being a charismatic. <laughs> I used to be a charismatic, and I used to look for signs and pray for dreams. And I used to beg God to show me all kinds of things until I started to understand that all I got to do is see with spiritual eyes, the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ on the cross, that there's no greater thing to behold than our Savior Jesus Christ through Scripture. So praise the Lord that it's not about just seeing. Right? You, you could never see a miracle. You could never see, quote-unquote, God do something in your life. But if you just see Christ, and you recognize your sin, and you believe in Him, you can be born again. Uh, another thought to consider about belief that changes your life is that real belief leads to what? It leads to worship. Uh, one evidence, your next blank, of true belief is worship. That's what, where it leads this man. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. We've talked about all the, the meaning of belief there, the importance of understanding the depth of that, and then he worships him. He, he now calls him master. I believe he makes his confession. He, uh, he adores Christ. The, the spiritual journey, by the way, of this man is remarkable. It's inspiring. Notice that his spiritual progression, even just in this one chapter, of, uh, of how this man was understanding who Jesus was. This, this man born blind understands that Jesus is a man, verse 11. He understands that Jesus is a prophet, Verse 17, he understands that Jesus was sent from God. Verse 33, he understands that Jesus is the Son of Man. Verse 35, and now he believes Jesus is Lord and God. Here in verse 38, this is, this is the conclusion of his spiritual journey to conversion and salvation. And, and what a tragic contrast to those who reject the light. In fact, Proverbs 4, 18 and 19 says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know where or what on that they stumble. So I like that reminder, right? It's like this blind man sees the light 
and he walks in the light of dawn. It keeps getting brighter and brighter until he sees Jesus in all of his glory, while the wicked, the Pharisees in this case, are steeped into deep darkness. Now that this man has seen the light, he can never go back, and he wouldn't want to. I mean, the light of Christ has now filled his eyes. The, the light of Christ has changed his life. You know, this week as we've been back from Singapore, Lisa and I are trying to get over jet lag, which I think we finally are getting there, but kind of during the week sometimes, you, you know how jet lag works, right? You get dead tired in the middle of the day, and you just got to go to bed sometimes a little bit early, and then you wake up in the middle of the night, and you can't go back to sleep, but you lay there forever because you don't want to get up in the middle of the night, and then finally, right as the sun comes up, you go back to sleep, right? And the sun comes up, and God's kindness, he's just designed it so that it comes up at 5.45 a.m., so it's like our pattern this week is like we go to sleep, we wake up, and then right as we're drifting back to sleep, here comes the sun, and it's coming into our room, even through our shades. It's like blowing them off the wall, like bright light on our bed. And at that point, you can't go back to sleep, right, because you've seen the light. And that's what it's like. When you, see, when you see the light of Christ, you can't return. You can never go back. It's too bright. It's too amazing. It's too wonderful. It's too transforming. You wouldn't want to go back to the darkness when you see the light of Christ. You just want to worship him and adore him and ascribe to him infinite value and worth, which he already owns and is. He just wants us to acknowledge that. And as we acknowledge that, he's exalted in our hearts, and we're able to express our love for him in worshiping him. And this is how uh, people respond to Jesus all throughout the Gospels. The, the disciples, when they were in the boat, when Jesus calmed the sea, they worshiped him. And after uh, they walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and they came back to report to the disciples in Luke 24, 52, Jesus presents himself and it says, and they worshiped him. The belief that changes your life is all about knowledge, heart response, and commitment, but true belief is also about worship. It's about worship. Are, are you in awe of Jesus Christ today? If, you, if you're here today and you say, well, I believe in the gospel. Yeah, but are you worshiping him? Like if your life isn't, isn't strategized around how you can give yourself to God in your time and in your effort and yes, in your resources, investing in the kingdom, if your life isn't moved to the point that you would truly say Jesus is more beautiful than anything you could ever imagine, is your life saturated with the dazzling, white, hot glory of God? If not, you're missing an aspect of the Christian life. It's believing, but it's worshiping him. Can, can you pray the prayer of Thomas Cranmer, who wrote in the Book of Common Prayer, quote, Almighty God, upon whom all hearts be open and all desires known and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. It's a blessing to be cast out. It's a blessing that you can have that belief that changes your life. And our third point this morning is this, the blindness of those who cannot see. Blindness leads to judgment. Here at the end of the chapter, it ends in a sense on a sad note. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Blindness leads to judgment. While man uh, this man can now see the Pharisees are now more blind than ever. Uh, what irony, really, this passage ends with. The idea that there was a blind man who was poor and he was a nobody, but he can now see. And yet there were Pharisees who had control of the nation and who were well-respected, and, and now they can't see. They're spiritually blind. The words of verse 39, For judgment I came into the world, may at first glance seem to contradict what Jesus said earlier in John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so you might, if you're studying through John, you might say, well, which one is it? Did he send him in here to condemn the world or not to condemn the world? Because one verse says, for judgment I came, and another verse says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Well, these two statements are far from anything that would be contradictory. They're simply expressing the reality that Jesus was sent to seek and save the lost. But in doing so, those who reject him will be judged. Those who reject Jesus are condemned already. 
These are just two sides of the same reality. To have your eyes open leads to repentance and faith. To reject Jesus leads to judgment. It's just as straightforward as that. This is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty five. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Jesus is saying that if you are wise in your own eyes, like the Pharisees, then you will have no understanding. But if you are humble like a little child, if you are teachable, if you have a repentant heart, then he will reveal the truth of salvation to you. It's 2 Corinthians 2.16. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To another, a fragrance from life to life. In the words of Warren Wiersbe, quote, the same sun that brings beauty out of the seeds also exposes the vermin hiding under the rocks. The religious leaders were blind and would not admit it. Therefore, the light of truth only made them blinder. Spiritual blindness ultimately leads to the judgment of God. Spiritual blindness also leads to confusion. Your next blank, it leads to confusion. Look how they respond in verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard the things that he was saying to him, and they ask, are we all so blind? The way this question is asked in the original language shows they expect a negative answer. In other words, the Pharisees overheard what Jesus was saying to the man born blind, and they ask, we are not blind too, are we? Surely, Jesus could not be suggesting that they were spiritually blind like the common people who did not know the law. I mean, after all, the Pharisees considered themselves to be spiritually elite, disciples of Moses, upholders of the law. The Pharisees thought of themselves as being superior, a cut above, deserving of special privileges. But here in John 9, Jesus is saying that they are blind. Matthew 15, 14, he says they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And so these Pharisees were utterly confused. They, they thought that they were right and that Jesus was wrong. They thought that their way was best and that Jesus' way was a dead end. They thought that they were pleasing God and that Jesus was operating in the power of the devil. What a self-inflicting, self-condemning judgment the Pharisees had put on themselves. Blindness needs to judgment. It leads to confusion, and it leads to guilt. Your last verse, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Blindness leads to guilt. The Pharisees may have expected a, a more direct answer to their question, are you talking about us? And then he gives them verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus says it in the perfect way that only he can. If the Pharisees would only admit that they were blind, then the blood of Jesus would cleanse them from their guilt. But since they claim that they can see, their guilt or their sin remains. Basically, what Jesus is saying is that those who admit that they cannot see are given sight, but those who insist that they can see perfectly without the Lord are confirmed in their blindness. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. No one will ever make it into the kingdom of God on their own. God must sovereignly open their eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God must give sight to their soul so that they may see their need of a savior. Blind eyes need more than just light. Blind eyes also need sight. And Jesus is the light of the world, and he gives sight to all those that he calls out of darkness into his glorious light. And so the question we must ask again is, do you believe it? Do you see it? Charles Spurgeon was so right when he wrote, quote, It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, 
but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, but our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. If you think you know, but you don't know the truth of the gospel, then you need to confess your sin this morning. You need to come to a place where you agree with what God Almighty says about every human being, which that is we are all slaves to sin. Don't let the irony of the fact that this man who was born blind can now see. And these Pharisees who thought they can see are now blind. Don't let this happen to you. Learn from this. Let us all look in to this passage with eyes of understanding. I wonder how many people come to church Sunday after Sunday thinking they must be good enough in God's eyes since they think of themselves as righteous. Yet they desperately need the light of God's truth to shine on their wickedness so the light of the world can open their eyes and help them truly see. Take home these thoughts, if you will, encouragement to you, three words of encouragement. Isn't it good to know that while you may be cast out by this world, you have been found by Christ? If you've ever sacrificed anything from this world, whether it be family or resources or a job or a former false religion, if you've been cast out and you faced a little pain through that, just be rejoicing this morning that you've been found by Christ. Isn't it good to know that you are able to be a believer today, not because you have seen Jesus in the flesh, but because you have seen him through his word. Aren't you thankful today that you don't have to necessarily see an outward miracle, but through the truths of the scripture and God's sovereign grace to open our hearts, you can see him today through his word. And lastly, isn't it good to know that while you could not see, you can now see, and your guilt has been taken away. Proverbs 26, 12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Don't be wise in your own eyes this morning. Look to Christ and to the wonder of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage this morning and kind of wrap up John chapter 9. So many lessons for us to think about here this morning, just being reminded that being cast out isn't such a bad thing, if that means that it puts us in a more strategic position to which your sovereign grace always finds us, that the Lord sought him out. Thank you for seeking us out. I pray for those who might still be lost, whether they be children or teenagers or college students or adults, that there may be some still lost. Lord, help us to see the error of our ways the self-righteousness of our rationalization. Help us today, God, only by grace again that we could see the beauty of Christ. That you would anoint our eyes with the saliva of the Spirit and that you would have us to wash and that we would come back seeing the beauty of redemption in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And so I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to be blessed and encouraged and apply some of these principles and these truths in our hearts, by your spirit, through your word, to the glory of the Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.